Thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. Well, good morning, church. I think the Apostle Paul would say that his sins were many, but God's mercy is more. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 9. We're going to pick up where we left off last week at the conversion of Saul. And uh, what we're seeing here is that this is the conversion life. So there's a conversion, there's a confession, and there's a commission. And so as we turn there, let me remind you that Saul is on his way to Damascus. He's got letters, and he's on his way to arrest all of those that are part of the way. And he is breathing out murder and threats. And God blinds him. He, as we said last week, stops him dead in his tracks. Stops him dead in his tracks and blinds him and physically blinds him to reveal to him that he was spiritually blind all along. That he had been blind with blind rage. What he thought what he was doing was justified. How he was treating people, how he was speaking about people. He was blind out of rage. He was blind in his religion. He thought that what he was doing, that he had followed the law to a T, that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, that, hey, you can't get any better than me. He even says in another part of scripture that he was blameless. I mean, that's pretty bold, right? I'm blameless. I'm perfect at this, following the rules. But yet he's breathing out murderous threats. He's approving, applauding the stoning of Stephen. And now God is going to blind him because he is blind in his sin. Oftentimes we are walking through life in blatant sin, blinded to the consequences of it, blinded to the fact that God is trying to get our attention. And so as we talked about, he was kicking against the goads that he is being prodded continually. There's a prodding of conviction in his life. And he was saying, I don't want any part of that. I want to kick against that. And when you kick against the convictions of God, you wound yourself further and you carry wounds and scars from the past. And many of us know that because if we have kicked against the consequences, uh, against the uh, convictions of God, we've carried the consequences that have wounded us, that we carry those hurts and those pains. And so this is exactly where Saul is, and he's going to get, he gets blinded, and then we're going to see another man come up in the story as we jump into Scripture today. But what we read last week was out of Galatians chapter 1. And I want to remind you of this. This is Paul describing Saul, who became Paul. I'll use those interchangeably. Um, he's talking about this conversion that took place. And in Galatians 1, 13 through 17, he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now, let me just say that. He says, look, God was pleased to reveal himself to me, that he was pleased to have this moment of conversion in order that there's a purpose behind your conversion. I want you to understand that today, that God comes into your life. He's pleased to reveal himself to you for a purpose, that in order that you might preach him, in order that you might confess, in order that the confession that you have would then lead into the great commission. So let me ask you this question. Have you come to a point in your life where you see that your conversion is for the confession and for the great commission. Have you come to that point? There's a purpose behind the conversion in my life. It's so that God can use me for the great commission. It's not that we can sit. It's not that we can feel good. It's not that we can pat ourselves in the back and be like, man, I was going somewhere. Missed that one. Woo, that was a close one. It's so that God can use our redeemed life for his glory and his purposes among those who don't know him. This is what 
is going to happen in the life of Saul turned Paul. David Platt puts it this way. Jesus has not given us a commission to consider. He has given us a command to obey. When Christ reveals himself, he also reveals what's in your heart. As we read the story, he's on the road to Damascus, and there's a bright light that just totally blinds him. He's taken back by this bright light. Well, Jesus is the light of the world that comes and shines into the darkest areas of our life. And he wants to shine in those areas and blind us, show us where we've been blind, show us the blind spots that we've been walking in. In fact, John says it this way in John chapter 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There are blind areas in each and every one of our lives. There are darkness, dark crevices in in the recesses of our heart, and Jesus Christ is pleased to reveal himself to us in a way that will shine a light into the dark areas of our life. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This word overcome is also translated comprehend. It's actually the Greek word that means to acquire, to grasp, or to lay hold of. If we walk in darkness and say we have fellowship with the light, we haven't taken hold of the light. Or maybe it hasn't taken a hold of us. Paul would say this in Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and given themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That was darkness, okay? (laughs) Light shines in the darkness. And I am so glad that it popped right back on, aren't you? I'm scared of the dark, and I'm scared of having no technology. So, um, wow. What were we talking about? We were talking about darkness. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for that. Let me just keep reading Scripture, okay? All right, 1 John 1, 5 through 10. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. What a perfect illustration. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Get this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. All of us come in here and we're dealing with sin. We're all coming in here dealing with dark areas of our life. We're dealing with blind spots that we've grown really accustomed to. You know what a blind spot is, right? You know, if you are a driver, you should know what a blind spot is. And when I was a teenage boy, I figured out what a blind spot was in my, in my sweet 1987 Bronco too. I figured out what a blind spot was when I was changing lanes and I was, I was just looking at my mirrors. Mirrors are good, 
right? Mirrors are great. They cover about 90 to 95% of what you can see. And if you're just using your mirrors, you're playing the odds. Let me tell you something. If you're just using your understanding of what God has called you to do based on what you think, you're using the odds in your favor. But if you're not checking the blind spots in your life and recognize that there are things creeping up from behind, you can easily wreck yourself. But the light of God wants to come in and shine in the dark areas of your heart. Reveal to you the blind areas, the blind spots, the things that you didn't see coming the things that were setting you up for failure. One of those blind spots is the blind spot of resistance. The blind spot of hard-heartedness and resistance is the resistance of repentance. Thinking that, you know what, these habits and these attitudes that I'm carrying, it's okay. And we begin to resist the prodding and the goading of the Holy Spirit. It's a blind spot that if it doesn't get in check can wreck our life. David Platt in his book, Counterculture, says it this way. God has not left you in the dark regarding what you should do. Flee, he says. Stop reasoning with sexual immorality. Stop rationalizing it and run from it. Flee every form of sexual immorality as fast as you can. Now, I say that because there's a lot who walk in the light or claim to walk in the light, but yet hold on to the darkness of sexual immorality and and sexual sin and rationalize it and make excuses for it and say, oh, it's just, it's part of the culture. It's what do we do? And we see ourselves with these blind spots, but yet we are resistant to lay them before the Lord. God, this is an area of my life that I know should not be there. I shouldn't be thinking this way. I shouldn't be engaging in this relationship. I shouldn't be following in this path, but yet I think it's okay. I'm just gonna play the odds with my mirrors. I don't think I'll wreck. The blind spot of resentment as I said last week, some of us come in here and we're bitter, we're angry, we're hurt because of what things, things that people have said, things that have been done to us. And we feel justified in the way we treat people, the things we say about people. And we carry this resentment and that resentment towards others makes us think that we're better than them. Or blind reluctance. The blind spot of willful disobedience. Not willing to go down the life and the path that Christ has called us to because you know what, I just don't want to do that. Well, there's a man in our story this morning. His name's Ananias. He has to overcome all of these blind spots in his life. He has to overcome this, resent, this resentment towards Saul. Saul has a reputation. Oh, I don't want to go to this guy. He's like got letters to drag us to prison. I don't know about this. He's got to overcome this this blind spot of resistance, this hard-heartedness. I, I don't know if I want to do that. And this blind spot of reluctance. But he is obedient and he shows us the foundation of obedience. So as we jump into Acts chapter nine, I know it was a long intro, but I wanted to get us there because we're going to see obedience played out through the rest of this chapter. So let's pray and let's jump in. Father, we thank you that you're the light of the world, that you shine into the darkest areas of our hearts. And right now I pray, Father, that, that if we walk in here claiming to walk in the light, but yet holding on to darkness, that you would expose it right now in our hearts, that you would convict us in such a way that we repent, and that we stop resisting you, that we are obedient to you, that we lay those things before you that we've been holding on to, that you would cleanse us from all sins, that we would confess those sins to you today. We thank you that your mercy is more, that your grace is more, that your grace is sufficient for us, that we are but sinners we are lost in darkness and we have one and one hope only and that is you. So Father, we would pray that you would meet us on the path today, that you would blind us with a bright light and that you would shine 
into the darkest areas of our heart. In Christ's name, amen. First thing, believers obey Christ in spite of their objections. Believers obey Christ in spite of their objections. Have you ever objected to what God wanted you to do? You ever been like, ah, I don't know. We see that in Acts chapter 9, 10 through 16. So here we go, starting verse 10. I hope you have your Bibles. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. Good to hear from you. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. And behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's God's word. Ananias teaches us a lot about the foundation of obedience. Believers are obedient. They obey in spite of their objections. He has the audacity at one point to be like, but God, I've heard about this guy. I'm not really sure about this plan that you've got going on here. There's a little bit of an objection that takes place, but the foundation for obedience to God is not understanding. And for a lot of us, we want to fully understand exactly what God's doing before we take that step of obedience. Am I right? But God, when he shines that light on our path, he usually gives us one or two or maybe even three steps, but he doesn't give us the whole story. Yet Ananias is given the whole story. Hey, Ananias, I want you to go to a street called Straight, and I want you to lay hands on this man named Saul, and he's going to regain his sight, and I'm going to use him as an instrument to proclaim the word of God, to spread the gospel. Okay, well, here's the plan but I have an objection to that. I don't fully understand why I have to do this. The foundation for obedience isn't understanding. The foundation of obedience isn't negotiable. And yet sometimes we want to negotiate with God. You ever been in that situation where you're praying, you're like, okay, God, I know you really want me to do this, but if I do this, this, and this, does it kind of make up for me not doing this? You're laughing, you're smiling because you know it's true. You're like, God, I'll give you this, this, and this, but please don't ask me to do this knowing that that's exactly what he wants you to do the whole time. How can I negotiate my obedience? The foundation of biblical obedience is not negotiable, and the foundation of obedience is not, get this, comfortable. You know that. Ananias is like, listen, this is, not, this is a little bit out of my comfort zone, God. Here I am. Oh, you want me to do What? Some of you, God has been knocking on your heart, calling you to do things in obedience outside of your comfort zone, and you've been turning a deaf ear to it for years. Well, I don't think God's calling me that because that's just not, that's just not comfortable for me. That's just not, I don't feel like that's my gifting. Okay. Right? Sometimes God calls us to be obedient in spite of it being comfortable or not comfortable. See, here's what Ananias teaches us. The foundation for biblical obedience is simply a love for Jesus. The foundation for why you should be obedient to God is you love him. Not that you understand, not that you can negotiate it, not that it's comfortable. I love you. Here I am. Use my ransom life in any way you choose. 
We have a conversion for a confession that leads to a commission. And every single one of us is called to that. The foundation of biblical obedience is the love for Christ. This is why Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. We know that verse. The foundation for biblical obedience is a love for Christ. 1 John 2, 3 through 5. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know we are in him. The foundation for biblical obedience is a superseding love for God that supersedes all other loves of our life. So a lack of obedience, especially when it comes to evangelism or confession or commission, reveals what's in our heart. A lack of obedience reveals what's in our heart. But I love God. I'm not saying you don't love God. I'm just saying that if you're not willing to be obedient because you don't understand, you want to negotiate, and it's not comfortable, you might love something more than you love God. You might love yourself. It isn't that we don't love God, it's that we love other things more. And if self-love supersedes the love for Christ, then we place a love for self-preservation over obedience. If a love for self supersedes a love for Christ, then we place an emphasis on self-preservation. Ananias at this moment is like, hey, have you heard about this guy? He's got letters to take people to jail. I'm not really sure about, this This doesn't work well for my self-preservation. But he's going to be obedient. If self-love supersedes the love for Christ, we will place a love for self-exaltation over obedience. God, I can't really be obedient in this area because it's going to look bad for me. It's going to look bad in my workplace. It's going to look bad in my school. It's going to look bad in my community. I, I can't really take a stand for this. I can't really be obedient in this area because it doesn't, it doesn't benefit me. If we place a love for self and it supersedes our love for Christ, then we'll love self-promotion more than obedience. And here's really where it comes down. If self-love supersedes the love for Christ, we'll place a love of self-gratification over obedience. I just really don't like that. It's not really comfortable for me. I don't, I don't enjoy that. So I, I'm going to choose self-gratification over obedience. But see, believers, they obey Christ in spite of their objections. That's where it gets us. The blind spot or the darkness of a love for self-gratification oftentimes supersedes a love for Christ's exaltation in our life. 1 John 5, 2 through 3, but we know that we love the, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. The word burdensome there means heavy or violent or cruel or disagreeable. If you love God, your heart delights in obedience. If you love self, it may become disagreeable. Obedience may become a burden. Ooh, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I don't want to carry that obedience. I don't want to follow through with that. I'm disagreeable with what God's calling me to do because my love for self has now superseded my love for God. But Ananias teaches us 
that the foundation of biblical obedience is a love for God that supersedes all other loves. Let me ask you something. When you look at your life and the life of obedience that God's called you to, the life of conversion, confession, and commission, does your life show that you have a love for Christ that supersedes all other loves in your life? Even when you have objections, even when you want to negotiate, even when it's not comfortable, even when you don't understand fully what God's calling you to do, does your life display a love for God in your obedience? But Ananias, verse 13, answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. Can you imagine the audacity of Ananias to question God's sovereign plan. God, I, I know that you have all authority and you sit at the right hand of the Father and I know that you see all things and you know all things and you've created all things and all things are for you and in you and by you. I, I get that, but hey, I heard about this guy and I think my plan's a little bit better than your plan. That sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But isn't that what we do? God, I, I know that you are all-knowing. I know you've got everything under control, but I really think I got this one. I know what I'm doing here. This is a better plan. Ananias says, here I am, Lord, but Lord, not that. Believers obey in spite of their objections. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, go. One preacher said this, everybody loves to hear Jesus when he says, come to me, all of you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But once we get there, he says, now go. And that is where Christian life becomes difficult. Everyone loves to come to me, Jesus. Oh, we don't really like the, now go, Jesus. Now go, therefore, into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you, the Great Commission. You see, our great conversion is for his great commission. And until we realize that, we will not operate as such. Our great conversion is for his great commission. And he says, look, I'm gonna show him that he is my chosen instrument. Saul's gonna be my chosen instrument, which is the word tool. He's gonna be my tool. And I'm gonna use him and he's gonna see how much he must suffer and he's gonna carry the blunt pain and agony of being a, instrument in the hands of a carpenter, and I'm going to use him for my glory. He's going to feel the effects of obedience. He's not going to just be a tool that sits on the pegboard. Now, I, I, like, I like tools. I don't have a ton of tools. Now, I've got some tools, and I cannot wait to get the pegboard all set up and put all my tools in the right little spot and then be all shiny and be like, yeah, those are all my tools. And then you're going to come over to my house, and you're going to say, what did you do with all these tools? And I'm going to say, Nothing. I don't know how to use them. They just look really cool and I'm a man, so I gotta have tools. Here they are. And some of us, we wanna be the tool that hangs on the board in the proper place that's all shiny and say, look what God did. He said, come to me. And he put me right here and I'm on display for everyone to see. But what if God says to you, but I wanna use you for my glory? I don't want you just sitting on some pegboard. I don't want you just sitting in some pew. I want to use you for a great commission. 
to be one who has a conversion that leads to a confession that goes on the commission. Many live in a perpetuated come to me and ignore the go for me call of God. We choose a comfortable Christianity over our commissioned obedience. So the thing with Ananias is he hears the word of the Lord. He knows exactly what God's called him to do. But the most important part is he has to take the step, doesn't he? He has to say, okay. He has to make the plan. He has to walk out of his house to a street called Straight, go to the house, knock on the door, walk in the door, look face to face at a guy who has letters to arrest him and say, Brother Saul, the Lord that came to you on the road has sent me to you. What obedience. Obedience is not just knowing what God's called you to do, it's actually doing it. How many people in the church know what God's asked us to do? And then how many actually do it? I'll tell you who. Those who have a love for Christ that supersedes all other love. I don't have to understand God. We're not gonna negotiate. It doesn't have to be comfortable. As Ananias said, here I am, Lord. Let me ask you, church, is that your position this morning? Make me a tool. Put me in the hand of the carpenter for your glory. Because my great conversion is for your great commission. Second thing is this, believers proclaim Christ in spite of their past. They obey in spite of their objections and they proclaim in spite of their past. Let's pick up verse 17. So Ananias, he departed, he entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Ananias, he is willing to do what God asked him to do in spite of the fear that he had to be feeling. I, I'm certain that Ananias was scared as he walked down the street called Straight into the house to lay hands on Saul. I'm certain of it. D.L. Moody once said, if you don't go to work for the Lord because you're afraid of making mistakes, you will probably make the greatest mistake of your life, and that is doing nothing. Some of us aren't obedient because we don't fully understand. We're not obedient because we want to negotiate. We're not obedient because it's just not comfortable. And some of us, we're so afraid, maybe afraid of making mistakes, maybe of saying the wrong thing, maybe of getting in a situation that we don't know how to handle, that we make the mistake of all mistakes, and that's doing nothing for the kingdom of God. Ananias, he wasn't an apostle. He wasn't somebody with all the credentials. He was simply a believer, a disciple who was sitting in Damascus and heard the Lord call on him and say, hey, I've got a job for you. This is the church. The church is full of disciples today 
who listen to the Lord, who hear his word, and then respond with, okay, I'm here. I'll do what you ask me to do. And then we see this change that takes place after Ananias is so obedient. Saul, the one who once was seeking to kill and arrest Christians, is now proclaiming Christ in the synagogues. And it says he immediately started doing that. Immediately, he begins to say, he is the son of God. The son of God or, or sonship in the Bible has to do with uh, obedience. And so when he begins to proclaim that Jesus is the son of God, he walks into the synagogue and he's like, look, he really is the chosen one. He really is God in the flesh. He really is the one who lived the perfect life that followed the law that was the perfect sacrifice for our behalf so that we could be saved. He really is the son of God. And so he's proclaiming this and everyone who hears him is like, wait a minute, was this not the guy who came into town just a few days ago to arrest everybody and now he's, he's proclaiming Christ? Our past does not keep us from proclaiming Christ. In fact, our past should be such a 180 that people are amazed at the change in our life. It says in verse 21, and all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who wreaked havoc in Jerusalem? Is this not the man? They were amazed. This is why Peter in 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6 says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So he's just saying, it's not that you're sinless. He's saying that if if you have this conversion and that you really want to obey God, there's going to be a difference about your life. There's going to be a 180 in the way that you seek the will of God over the passions of the flesh. For that time, he says, in the past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He's like, look, you have a past, that suffices for it. Move on. It's time for a 180 change in the life of a believer. And he says this, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. They're amazed at the 180 change that's taken place in your life. Listen, there's a lot of people who are not amazed at the change in the life of believers because there's not really been a change. They claim to walk in the light, but yet they have all the darkness still in their heart. They still engage in sin. They don't want to check the blind spot in their life. They walk in resentment. They walk not wanting to repent of sins. They walk not fleeing from sexual immorality, but accepting sexual immorality. And the world is not going, is this not the same person? And the reason they're not saying, is this not the same person? Is because there's not been any change. And it might be because the love for Christ has not superseded a love for self. There's a lot of believers who claim to walk in the light but have such a love for themselves that darkness still reigns. So we proclaim Christ in spite of our past. There should be a change from old to new, from dead to life. Let me ask you, do people see the 180 change in your life? I think I told you when I went to my 20-year reunion in high school for my high school uh, reunion, it was one of those really fun times where you put the, your name tag on and everybody's like, oh, yeah. And then you're like, you're like, who is that? I don't know who that is. You're looking everybody up on Facebook. And uh, you're, you're talking to everybody, and they're like, Jeff, what are you doing nowadays? And I was like, well, I'm a pastor. 
oh, um, did you always want to do that? <laughs> no, no. Oh, okay. Well, that explains a lot. You know, like it was just this. There's a one. This there's a 180 change. This this is not the same person. Let me ask you: Is there a change in your life? Is there a change that surprises people that you do not participate in the same things that they participate in? We proclaim Christ in spite of our past. And here's the last one: Believers worship in Christ in spite of their weakness. We all come in here today, we're, we're all willing to admit the fact that our flesh is weak at times. And we worship God because he is greater. His mercy is more. And that's why we come and we proclaim this. Verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Wow, things changed, huh? Saul, who was coming to arrest Christians is now, they're seeking to arrest him, to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. They, they set up post. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Let me stop right there. From verse 23 through 25, and then when we pick up in verse 26, there's a three-year span that takes place from verse 25 to 26. Three years pass. We know this from Galatians chapter one that we read earlier. Nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who are apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. There's a period of time here that the Warren Wearsby says, Paul gave himself to study, to prayer, to meditation, and to meet with the Lord. There's a time here where he is beginning to understand the conversion. He's been confessing, and now he's being equipped for the commission. Worship, as Paul would say, begins in the word of God. It begins with being obedient to the word of God. And it begins by being equipped by the word of God. You can't properly worship without the word. Paul understood this. Many believers, however, neglect the word of God and it has a tremendous effect on the works that they do for God. If you show me someone whose life is bearing off track, who's continually being blindsided by sin or, or sins keep creeping up and living in darkness, I'll show you someone who typically ne neglects the word of God. Paul, he didn't neglect God's word. Students, as you come to church now, you come because this is a time of preparation for you. God's preparing you. You're being brought by your parents to church. You're being instructed in the word of God. You're being instructed by the Lord of God, the Lord. And he's guiding you into all understanding and wisdom and insight because pretty soon as an adult, you're going to have to own your own faith. And he's preparing you for what a commissioned life looks like. Some of us who are adults, we know this. We maybe have we were raised in church and we sat in church day or Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. We heard God's word. We heard God's word and we were told, be in God's word, be in God's word, apply God's word, obey God's word. And that was preparation for one day a commissioned life where God can use your ransom life in any way he chooses. Because your great conversion is for his great commission. Verse 26. And when you come to Jerusalem, 
he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and, and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. There you have Barnabas. We mentioned Barnabas several weeks ago. He's a man full of encouragement. His name means encouragement. He's full of grace. He's filled with the Spirit, and he is used by God to bring unity to the church. And generosity and grace are the basis of the unity of the church. Barnabas is used in this way. So, verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The church gathered in unity because of the grace and generosity of Barnabas when it came to Saul and his past. Look, we all come in here with a past. We all come in here with sins. And the church welcomes you in because we all need the light to shine in the dark areas of our life. And we worship we worship together. And as we worship, we focus on God's word and we're built up together. I'm gonna close with this quote from R.C. Sproul. It says, we are to be the people who are persuaded that Jesus is the Christ. That God's son, his only begotten son, came into the world for us and for our salvation, which is why we gather together and give a sacrifice of praise to give honor, worship, and adoration to him. How shall we worship? The big question today is the who question. Whom do we worship? Who we worship defines how we worship. R.C. Sproul says, I almost cry when I drive past churches and see advertisements for worship service that say 930 service, traditional, 11 service, contemporary. Our worship is blended. We're in an ecclesiastical cafeteria. If you want one style come at 9.30, if you want another style come at 11, that is the language of the contemporary church. The church growth movement is always and everywhere asking, what do the people want? The issue is what does God want? God wants the people who worship him through his word. He says, who is it that we're here for? We're not here to please unbelievers. Surely we are to evangelize them, but corporate worship on Sunday morning is for the body of Christ, for believers to be brought before the living God and approach him as holy. So the how question must always be answered by the who question. That should be the true, that should be true in every aspect of our lives. How we live as Christians, how we live as our Christian lives should be determined by how we understand who God is and who Jesus is. We have to deal with the Son of God. And though we are called to enter boldly into his presence, he never stops being holy. And that should be manifested in how we worship him. I believe that how people worship God speaks louder about their understanding of who he is than any creed or theology written. So this morning, we have an opportunity to worship. Corporate worship in grace, in generosity, in unity, exalting Jesus as the son 
of God. Because of a conversion, there's a confession. And as we leave, there's a great commission that we're all called to. Worship is a matter of commandment, not a matter of convenience. So as you worship, you worship in obedience. Our obedience is a display of our love for Christ. Our gathering together isn't about comfort. It isn't about convenience. It isn't about preference. It's about our conversion. It's about our confession. It's about how we've all been called to the Great Commission. If our words, if our worship doesn't match our works in the, in the week, then we aren't worshiping. We're just singing. I invite you not to just sing a song as we close. I invite you to worship. And I invite you to worship in weakness, knowing that apart from Jesus Christ, you're hopeless and you're helpless. But he loves you dearly. So let me pray for us and then let's worship this morning, shall we? Father, we love you. We thank you so much. God, we would pray right now that our, our knowledge of who you are would so fill our hearts with gratitude and grace that we would be such a unified body as we worship you, that we would sing not just songs, but we would sing aloud with a confession that you are Christ and you are the Son of God, that we would worship you in a way that it is seen in our acts of obedience this week as we leave here with a confession on our lips for the Great Commission. Father, if there's someone here who comes in weak, feeling defeated by sin, feeling defeated by the darkness in their heart, Father, I would pray that you would fill their hearts right now with a light that shines so bright that darkness cannot overcome it, and they would sing aloud a shout of praise. Father, we worship you. Let us respond in obedience. In Christ's name, amen. Will you stand? Will you respond? Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Go to our website, meadowviewbaptist.com, or subscribe to hear more sermons like this, or to get more information about how to be involved at Meadowview Baptist.